Happy Easter to you. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, glad to see so many new faces, visitors, family. I'm glad that you've chosen to worship together this morning. We're glad to have you. And uh, this morning, we're gonna break away from our study in 1 Samuel, and we're gonna be into Gospel of Luke this morning. What does it take for you to believe in something? I'm guessing it depends on what you're being asked to believe in. For example, if I asked you to believe that I used to live in West Virginia, you would probably take my word for it and believe what I'm saying. Nothing really important depends upon whether I lived in West Virginia or not, because people live all over the world. So it wouldn't be hard for you to take what I'm saying as truth. But what if I asked you to believe that my great-great-grandfather was the founder of Ford Motor Company? Well, that might be a little bit harder for you to believe. You'd want to ask some more direct questions about where I grew up and why my last name is not Ford. But I might have enough information to, to convince you that it's true. It's not, but I might. What if I asked you to believe that I'm not the young preacher standing before you, but I'm the Flash, the fastest man on earth? I think you're going to say, Jeff, unless you give some verifiable evidence that you are indeed the fastest man on earth, all that we're going to believe is that you need a very long vacation, perhaps in a highly supervised facility. But what if I talk a lot about it? You know, what if I try to convince you with all good arguments and passionate pleas to believe what I say? I don't have necessarily the proof, but I can talk about it. Would you believe that I'm the flash? You know, what we believe and how we come to believe depends a lot on the significance of what's being asked to believe in. How incredible is the ask? It also depends upon the person who's asking. Are they trustworthy? Are they known for their honesty? And yet it depends on what, what they are asking us to, to believe. Is it where they have lived or who they are or why they are here and what they're called to do? One is much less significant than the other. What you believe shapes your life. It will affect what you build your life on and how you will live your life. Well, today is Easter. I'm sure you know that, and we're glad you're here. Many of you are first-time visitors, and I want to welcome you. You are welcome here. We're glad you're here. And I also want to be honest with you this morning. We're not here this morning celebrating the fact that Winter is over, and spring is coming. Although it doesn't look that way out today, but just be thankful it's not snow. We're not here to celebrate that spring has come. We're not here because we can now have flowers and green grass, and that we can eat a meal outside. That's not why we're here today. We're here this morning because we believe that Jesus Christ was literally and physically resurrected from the dead. We believe it. We don't think it's an idle tale. We don't think it's some sort of analogy. We believe Jesus Christ was physically and literally murdered, killed that Friday, and went into the grave. And on Sunday morning, on that morning, he was physically resurrected from the grave. We believe it. We have embraced it. And we understand that there's big implications because of that belief. Do you believe it? That's the question of the hour. 
Do you believe that Jesus is alive? The answer to this question will change your life. It will revolutionize your life. And, and to encourage you this morning in our belief and understanding of what Jesus did and what Jesus did on this Sunday morning, the, the, the day we celebrate of him raising from the dead, we're gonna look at Luke chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We'll look at verses one through 12. And I'll read the passage and then we'll pray and get started here this morning. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse one. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and went home marveling at what had happened. It's around 6 a.m. in this story, very early on Sunday morning. Two days earlier was the worst day in history. With all his friends and family surrounding him, Jesus breathed his last and spoke his final words, it is finished. After Jesus was crucified, he was removed from the cross and it was so close to the beginning of the Sabbath that the disciples only had time to very quickly prepare the body of their Lord. Some spices were applied, but not the full treatment that would be normal for someone by their loved ones. And so these women who loved Jesus and who were truly devoted to him go to the tomb at the break of dawn, bringing along the spices to fully prepare the body of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 16, verse 3, one of the things that they talked about on the way to the tomb was their concern about how they would roll away the stone when they would come to the tomb. They were concerned about this. How, how are we going to move this, this stone? It's huge. Apparently, they hadn't heard that the tomb was not only sealed, but it was also guarded. But when they get there, the stone is already rolled away, and they look inside, and Jesus' body is gone. Now, I don't want to dismiss the sincerity of these ladies. Their love and devotion to Jesus is admirable. But, but Luke is a details man. He's going to set the scene for us so that we understand what the motivation was of these ladies as they approached the tomb. Part of their journey, part of their mission was based upon their unbelief. They're living in unbelief. They're, they didn't listen to what Jesus had said to them and to the others. And they go to the tomb expecting to find the body of Jesus and he's not there. So this morning, I want to see two different denials of the ladies here in our text. Two denials, two points, the denial of the miracle of the resurrection and the denial of the meaning of the resurrection. So before we, we launch into that, I'm going to pray. So you pray for me and I'll pray for you and we'll get started. 
Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can come together as the body of Christ and we can spend time rejoicing that today we can remember that you've come back. You were resurrected. You are alive. And we rejoice in that. And we celebrate today. Father, I ask that you would help your people here this morning, that they would be attentive and hear from you. They would listen to what your word has for them this morning. And I pray for those that come this morning that are invited by friends or family and they don't believe. I ask that you would teach them this morning, that you would give them new life, that you would give them understanding and faith to believe and trust in you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. First, the the followers deny the miracle of the resurrection. As I read in this passage, the ladies come the first day of the week, early dawn, Sunday morning to the tomb, and and the, the stone is rolled away, and they come in, and Jesus' body is gone. They're expecting to find Jesus. They came believing that the tomb would be full. They denied the possibility of a miracle. They don't expect this miracle to happen. They expect to find a body, and they expect then to perform the duties. They believe that Jesus is among the dead. But after all that they experienced in the last few years, how could they come to this conclusion? Well, they're they're shocked. They're shocked to find the empty tomb. And then to have two men standing there in in dazzling apparel, Luke says, two two angels shining brightly, dressed as, as white light to shock them. They weren't expecting this either. But it's not only the women, actually the rest of the passage, the disciples don't believe when the women come back and tell them what they have seen. Can you put yourself in the position of these women? They came to the tomb expecting to find it sealed and and worried that they're not gonna be able to have the energy, the, the, the ability to move the stone away from the tomb so they can go in and perform the duty. But as they come, the tomb is empty and, and there's no body. Their, their minds and their hearts race to find the answers to what has happened. Jesus is supposed to be there. And they can't understand what's happening. And the angels are there to teach them. They're there to direct their hearts. The women are treating Jesus just like every other leader, every other person they've ever met. And what the angels are basically saying to us is, if you treat Jesus as if he's like every other founder of other religion, or if you treat him like every just good teacher, then the truth he shared keeps going, but he doesn't. And you'll never find Jesus. You'll never understand him. You'll never see Jesus. But, but friends, Jesus isn't like those other religious founders. He isn't like the other teachers. He isn't like everyone else. Jesus is God. Jesus is alive. He has risen. And the angels here are making a, a brand new category for their minds. You see, before that day when people die, they don't rise again. They don't come back to life. They're, they're gone. This is what the women think when they approach the tomb. Tombs are for dead people. But Jesus isn't there. He's gone. He's alive. He conquered death, and the angels are there to direct them to understand that Jesus isn't some plain, ordinary teacher. He isn't just a, a religious leader looking for a following. No, he's different. He isn't just a man. He was God. 
And how many of you are making the same mistake? How many of you are here and thinking of Jesus the same way? You say, I believe in the teaching of Jesus. He's very inspiring. I respect him and all that he did, and he's a good man, but I can't believe that he got up from the dead. I'm a very thoughtful, modern person. This might have worked for them back then or for you, but not for me. See, friend, you're missing the evidence of the resurrection. I understand people today are very scientific. They begin to think that there aren't any miracles. I get it. We're too advanced for these sort of thoughts. But back then, those type of people, they were much more gullible than us. Right? But that's not true. Because in the Greco-Roman world, people believed the physical was bad. They believed the body was bad. So the idea of a physical resurrection was silly. It was ridiculous. They couldn't believe in a physical resurrection during that time. That is why when Paul preaches uh, to, to those in Acts 17 and Acts 26, he's mocked for his belief that Christ has risen from the dead. So there's, there's just as skeptical, skeptical people back then as there is today. And, and Luke here is after you, and he's bringing the evidence. You know how he brings the evidence? He names names. He names names. You see that in the text? Look at verse 10. Because he doesn't just say women in general, or these people. No, he names names. He gives a list. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other woman. Why? Why does he give a list of the names? See, Luke writes this gospel account 40 to 45 years after it happened. So, so why does he give names? Well, let me ask, how many of you were around and, and saw Mount St. Helens blow its top? Quite a few of you. Almost 40 years ago. Anyone... Uh, stand out in their driveway or drive by and see the effect of it? You can put your hand back up. Even more. You saw the evidence of that day. You walk around and you can ask people to, to see what happened. Just 38 years ago, my great aunt has told me about it before. She lived in Vancouver and she'd tell me about how it was snowing, it seemed like, from her driveway. But let's say on that day in 1980, when Mount St. Helens blew just after that, President George Washington showed up. George Washington, our first president, appeared and walked around Portland. He's there. He's interacting with people, spending time with them, teaching them for over a month. First just a few people, then 12, then 500 people see George Washington. And then in 2018, 38 years after, the account was written of those days with George Washington. You can read all about it becomes a bestseller right away. And in it, they name names. Would you drive down to Portland and find out? You'd want to find out. And you would say, who, who saw him? Who interacted with him? And, and the, the author says, here are the names. Go talk to them. Go find out the truth. You would do this. You would want to find out. And you'd want to talk to the people that saw George Washington rise from the dead. Luke here names names. He wanted the readers to verify the account. He puts the names there for a reason. Oh, you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Oh, why don't you go find Joanna? She was there. She saw it. And while you're at it, there's a few other women. And, and yet more. Go ask them. Go verify this information. 
You see, friends, the evidence is there. Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a good person. And if you believe that he's just a legend, that Jesus was just a good man, then you'll never find him that way. You might be a good person. You might be the kind of person and disciplined, but you won't be a Christian. Because Christianity's most basic truth is based upon a risen Lord. You have to believe the resurrection. But there's more here. The woman, as they're approached by the angels, they, they're asked a, a pointed question. Verse 5, why do you seek the living among the dead? That's a big question. It's a disturbing question. It's like going to a scrapyard to find a new car or, or going to the morgue to find a date. It's a grotesque image. It's clear that these women are here. They're there to see a dead man. You know, we don't stop by a gravesite to talk with living people. They had seen Jesus die and taken off the cross. Their minds were on death. But it's clear from the angel's question that they won't find Jesus among the dead. They can't think of Jesus now as dead. And their next statement of verse 6 says, He's not here, but has risen. All life that is lived apart from the resurrection is really a slow death. And so many people simply live to die, and yet some are dying to live. But the resurrection means you live to live. We don't visit tombs to meet with God. Tombs are for dead people. We visit the Alpha Omega, the, the resurrection and the life. And so these, these questions not only direct their hearts, but they teach. The angels are there to teach them the word. Imagine again the, the range of emotions these women and the other disciples are experiencing in these days following the crucifixion. They're mourning. They're, they're wondering. They're scared. With all the swirling emotions, they're tempted to interpret everything through their feelings. We can feel so deeply that we give our feelings the last word. And we, we can say to ourselves or others, I don't care what you say or what the facts are or even what the Bible says, I know how I feel. You know, there's many Christians that want an event. They, they want a feeling. They want the excitement and the enthusiasm and there are plenty of churches that cater to this out here. But listen, friends, how utterly worthless is your emotional response if you don't understand what's being presented? Think of this, friends. The women stumble upon the resurrection of their Lord and they don't understand. They need to be taught. They need the word given to them. If someone didn't teach you the significance of what it is and why it happened, then all you would have is your feelings. And your feelings can be very poor indicators of truth. That's why it's vital for you, friends, vital to sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word every week. Because we can be led about by our subjective emotions, recognizing that they're not all bad, but our subjective emotions have to be led and taught by the object of truth. God's word. We have to be taught what God's word is. We have to be taught what God's word means. You can't just have an experience and not the explanation. Think again of these women here at the tomb. Do you realize that an empty tomb isn't enough for them? They don't understand. 
They don't understand. The women stumble upon an empty tomb and they don't get it. What if, what if the angels weren't there to teach them? They would have ran back and said to the other disciples, someone took his body. They needed to be taught. This is why as Christians, we give our lives to the study of the Bible, to learn it, to know it, to apply it. Friends, this is why we have Sunday school at our church. We don't just fill another hour. There's other things you could do for that hour. We have Sunday school so that you can be taught the word of God. We do this because we want to study the word. We want to give an explanation of what the word says. So that's why it's important for you to be here, to learn, to study, and to apply the word to your lives. This is why for you visitors that our, our services are shockingly long. And they might get longer. We desire to teach the word. And this is my, just my first point. You need the word preached. You need the word taught. You need the word explained. Otherwise, friends, you're going to be led astray by your feelings. Do you notice the word here in this passage, remember? You should never underestimate how remembering God's word will change and steady your emotions when the most tragic and surprising things happen to you. Their feelings should have been rooted in their, not in their experience, but in Jesus' teaching. And this is important. I want to spend a few more minutes here. The way we live the Christian life, the way that we grow in grace is by believing the word of God. These women will not be able to understand the events of the resurrection without Jesus' words. And the same for us. We don't understand life apart from the word of God. We don't read the word of God through the light of our life. We read our lives through the light of the word of God. And some of you are trying to live life without the word. And it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly traumatic to you. You don't know which way is up and which way is down. See, the word interprets the events, the situations, the circumstances of our lives. And we read God's providence in our lives through the lens of Scripture. This is vital for us. We think back, friends, have you ever had a situation in life, a, a loss, a tragedy, something that has troubled you and confused you and you can't figure it out, you can't make any sense of it? You believe in God, you want to trust him, and so you believe him and yet you wrestle. And you wrestle for, for a day or for weeks or months or even years. And what you're trying to do, you're, you're trying to trust God, but it's hard. And you've probably had those times in your life. It's not that you were trying to reject the word. You're just trying to figure out how this makes sense. What is God doing now? You have the evidence right in front of you, but you're trying to sort through it. You're, you believe God. You want to believe the best of him, but you're struggling. And the angels say to these women, you won't get there until you remember Jesus' words because Jesus' words, God's words, are life-giving and faith-producing in the midst of trials. And you have these times in our life just trying to make sense of all of it. But what brings balance and what brings comfort isn't the world. It's not the wisdom in the world. It's God's word. And I know it's true because you've, you've 
as a congregation, come and share this with me. How God's word has, has shaped you and has helped you and has encouraged you. And it's that you're resting in what God says through his word. And you read his word. And you remember what his word says. It's not that you understand everything in your situation or even have all the answers, but you rest in what God's word says. And maybe it's that passage that you've read a thousand times, but today, today it makes sense to you. It sinks deep within you. And in that day, the, the word of God has interpreted your life back to you. And suddenly you are able to rest in the providence of God because God's word interprets the life's events to you. Not the other way around. If we allowed the events of our lives to dictate what we thought about God, we would have very messed up theology. So the angels say to the woman, if you're going to understand and respond to the resurrection the right way, you have to remember the words of Jesus. You have to remember God's word. And for you to understand who God is and what the resurrection means for you, you have to know the word. You can't trust your feelings. Their feelings here are, are, are shown for us. They were frightened. They, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Remember, Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. In 9.44, let these words sink into your ears, Jesus says. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In Matthew 17, 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. In Mark 9, 30 and 31, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. They needed to remember the words. And the evidence is there. And what do the women do? It says they remembered his words. They remembered his words. What glorious words those are. They remember. They initially deny the miracle of the resurrection, but through God's word, they understand. So they deny the miracle of the resurrection. Secondly, the followers here deny the meaning of the resurrection. Now, when the angels are there with the women, they inform them of the resurrection. And the question to them is, is why don't they believe? He's resurrected. Why don't you believe he's resurrected? Well, why didn't you expect this? Well, they don't expect it because they don't understand his death. They don't understand his death. Right away, they tell them, remember, he told you. He told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Do you see the word must? Always take notice when you see the word must. He must be delivered. He must suffer. He must die. He must be raised. 
All the verbs in this passage here are passive. These are things that men are doing to Jesus, not things Jesus does to himself. But the word must tells us someone else is acting in and through behind these sinful men. And friends, this is providence. This is God working here. It's the invisible hand of God bringing these events to fruition. It's all according to his plan. Now let's put this where we all can understand. Frankly, most people that come to church on Easter do believe in the miracle of the resurrection. They believe that Jesus died and he was raised. They, they retell the story. They like the symbols of Easter. They teach it to their kids and they like to remember. But somewhere along the way, we forget that Jesus had to die. Here the woman didn't understand. The woman knew that Jesus died, but they didn't know that he had to die. And this is significant. This is what the angels say. You know that Jesus had to die. But what does it mean? They, they, they understood. They, they knew he suffered. Maybe he suffered as a kind of example. That he held his integrity. That he submitted to their trial. And they knew that he, they loved him and that he loved them. And because of that love, they're completely crushed when they see him breathe his last on the cross. They loved him and they, and they understand that he dies and he does this. They don't understand why. Why did Jesus die? Do you know why Jesus died? His death wasn't an example for us. It wasn't a way of being an example for us to emulate. It wasn't a way to combat the authorities or to teach something. You see, if, if all they know is that Jesus was a good man, a righteous man, and he died trying to show them something, then all they will do for their lives is try to emulate him, to try to honor him in some way. They don't understand why he must die. It wasn't for an example. See, their service for him means nothing if his death means nothing. We have a child, and I won't name names. But whenever Easter would roll around when she was younger, she'd get really upset. And she passed out multiple times in different situations when the Easter story we read and crucifixion we read. So for you Sunday school and preschool teachers, I apologize again. And I remember Katie and I trying to figure out this kid. What is going on? Why is she always getting so upset? So upset that she would pass out in the story of Jesus being crucified on the cross. One weekend, we were down visiting a church in Portland. And we're sitting there worshiping. And, and this church had the numbers on the screen, right? Which I'm so thankful we don't have that. Because you know what happens when a number goes up? Everyone looks around to see who that is. And it was our number. And we thought, what is that? And I go back and... Teachers explaining again, and this one of my children passed out, fell out of the chair. And they're freaked out. We're visitors. What's going on? And I go back and pull her aside, and five or six at the time, and she said to me that she was scared that she would need to die like Jesus someday. She was so upset. Happened multiple times actually during that season. Every time the story was retold, because she thought that she had to do the same. And I said, honey, 
Jesus did that for you because you couldn't. Jesus had to die for you because you couldn't do it yourself. And now you need to believe and trust in him because his sacrifice is enough. But he had to do it. See, my daughter thought that she would need to do the same thing. It was natural for her to think that she would need to emulate this, but that's not the gospel. To say that Jesus' death on that Friday isn't just an example, but that he had to die as a sacrifice means that all you're serving is never going to be good enough. You're too sinful. You're too lost. You're too guilty. He had to die. He had to die for you. And if you don't like this idea, then you are like the woman who stand before the angels. Do you understand that Jesus had to die for you? Do you believe that Jesus had to die for you? Or do you believe that you're a good person? You pay your taxes on time. You don't hurt people. You want to raise good kids. You want to be nice to people. And that should be enough. You say, look, Jeff, I'm trying. I'm trying to live the right way. I'm trying to raise my family well. That should be enough to push me through this life. And friends, all you're trying to do is you're trying to continue to obey the law. You still want the law. You still want to try to obey, to do. You see the questions from the angels, they turn them away from the law and they turn them to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. The death, burial, and resurrection frees us from keeping the law in order to be right with God. Christ fulfills the law in our place. We couldn't do it. And this is littered throughout the New Testament as Jesus teaches about himself. In Matthew 5, 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. This is what Paul teaches us in the book of Romans, Romans 1, 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is, from, is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in many ways, the remainder of the book of Romans simply expands and explains the truth of Romans 1, 17. So if, for example, Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Or back to Romans 4.25 where righteousness and resurrection are connected. It says he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. See, the resurrection turns us from law keeping to gospel believing. The resurrection turns us from self-righteousness to trust in Jesus' righteousness. The resurrection turns us from trying to earn God's love by our good deeds to freely accepting God's love as a gift through faith in his son. The resurrection turns us from the death that the law requires to the eternal life that Jesus has purchased. And every day, every moment of life, friends, can be a turning again, a self-reorienting to the gospel, to remember the gospel, to remind ourselves of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, your flesh wants to justify yourself in your work. But you'll never find peace that way, and you'll never find salvation that way. 
You have to live in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Remember on the cross, he cries out, it is finished. He has completed all of it. And the women, they come to the tomb thinking about the law. What it required, what the law forbid with the question from the angels, why do you look for the living among the dead? And they soon discover that even though they came looking to fulfill the law, they leave forgiven and justified because of what Christ did. Christ fulfilled the law. The angels say, no, that's not enough. You're, you're, you're coming to the tomb to anoint the body to remember the death of Jesus isn't enough. There's a difference. Do you see it? The, before the woman understood when the angels said, before the, their theology was corrected, before they were told the resurrection, before they were told why Jesus' death, they were serving, they were striving, they were working. They're trying to earn their way. They're trying to do. They're trying to live a good life. They're trying to show honor and respect to their teacher. You know, it's a funeral. They're walking slowly to the tomb. They're becoming good people, trying to honor this person that they loved and respected. They came dressed for a funeral, and instead, it's a wedding. Things change in that moment for them. Because they get the gospel and they understand it. And when they remember the words of Jesus, do you see it? They run back to tell others. Because the gospel changes people. It changes people. When they get it, they take off to tell others. They're not doing any longer, they're going to tell. They're not trying to earn the way. They're, they're telling others of the way. And it's possible, I understand, that many of you here this morning are in the very same position of these women. You're around Jesus, you know of Jesus, but you don't get it. You're trying to earn your way. You're trying to live a good life. And you want the law. But Christ came to fulfill the law so you could be free. You could be saved. You could have life everlasting without the burden of the law because you get Christ. You get his righteousness. This is what the resurrection is all about. Friends, this is Easter. This morning we have the privilege to celebrate communion together. I want to ask the men come forward here as I continue as we prepare ourselves. I read this week, I actually heard an interesting parable written by Homer. Uh, of, in this parable, it's a fox traveling along a forest path, winding in and out of the trees. And, and finally, the fox finds himself at the entrance of a dark cave. And where he says it's visible to see many footprints going in. And from the darkness of the cave, there is a voice that says, come in here. But the fox says, no, I see many footprints going in, but I don't see any footprints coming out. I don't want to go in. Friends, this is a picture of death. 
generations and generations going in, but no one's coming out. All the great leaders of our world, the wisest people you've ever met, presidents, religious leaders, prophets, dictators, rulers, kings, all uniquely enter. Buddha went in. Muhammad went in. None of them came out. They're all gone. Jesus came out. And that's why I want to listen to him. That's why I want to build my life around following him. I want to serve him. I want to listen to every word he spoke to us. He came out. He left the darkness. He's the only one. He is the only one who went in and came back out. And he shows us that this world doesn't have all the answers. He teaches us that there's so much more than this life here on earth. That there's more to this life. His resurrection from the dead is proof for us, friends. And so friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you came this morning, we're, we're glad you're here. You're welcome any Sunday. But if you're not trusting in Christ, today you can live in the reality of the resurrection too. This gospel is for you, friend. Right now, God's law requires that you die for your sin. Death is the penalty for sin. Death is the agonizing judgment, a curse from God, an enemy that separates those who die in sin from God forever, and that's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life to God that you couldn't live. That's how he became the righteousness, that Jesus died and suffered God's wrath and the judgment in our place on the cross, and that he takes away our sin and he takes away our guilt. And then three days later, God raises him from the dead to prove that he had accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And now God the Father calls everyone to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus as their God and Savior in order to be resurrected from the dead, forgiven of sin, made alive again through faith, and to live eternally with God forever. Friends, this is the good news. All who trust in Jesus, even if they die, will live again in the power of the resurrection. We will live again with God. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Friends, it's only through the resurrection of Jesus that we can have hope for this life and hope for the next. The resurrection is our anchor of that hope. Will you pray with me before we partake? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together today with hope because you've conquered death. 
and you bought us back from the slave market of sin. You redeemed us. And Father, this morning, we remember. We remember on Easter morning what you've done for us. And we will celebrate together by partaking of the bread and the juice. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus, giving himself for us, fulfilling the law completely. And now we can be yours. We thank you, God. We thank you, Jesus, for dying for us and for coming alive again. And we know that you are alive and that you're coming back for your bride. May we rejoice again this morning in that truth. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.